Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Welcome to The Bridge. With Elon Musk's dream of a hyperloop in the U.S. shuttering its doors, it looks like China is stepping into the field and advancing the technology to bring the future of rail into reality. Why did Hyperloop 1 decide to close? And what does China have up its sleeve? It might just be magical. We're joined by David Fung, the trains guy, a well-known expert on all things rail-related. Regularly sought out for his expertise on everything trains, he has agreed to share his insights on the future of Hyperloop and other future tech. Hi, welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. Uh, so, you know, actually, be- before I get to anything we're going to talk about, I wanted to ask you, because you have an, a moniker, is it the train guy or the trains guy? Because <laughs> I've seen it both ways. It works both ways as well, actually. A train is actually a mode of transport, but it can run on different systems, national or regional rail. It can run on metros, on uh, the tram network. So I like to think of myself as going between all three, national rail, metro and tram. So a bit more trains rather than just me one specific kind of train. You know, we, we, at the end of the show, we should come back around and talk about those new uh, AI trains with no tracks and talk about your opinion on that. So we'll get to, th- we'll get to that later. So my producer mentioned that for Chinese New Year, that she has to use an AI regulated app in order to buy her ticket to go back home fast enough to get a rail ticket. Uh, Do you know anything about this? Is it that difficult to get a a rail ticket during Chinese New Year? Um, The AI bit, I mean, you know, basically these days, everything is powered by AI, like in China, in Europe, pretty much everything. So, I mean, if we had to use AI to get our bookings done, I think it would not be anything out of the ordinary. Uh, But I think what happens is... uh, Usually, I mean, this is the way I book. I still book via the official 123 or 6 China Railways online booking app, or I go to railway stations. So, um, and I often would plan my journey if I had to make a journey during the Spring Festival peak travel period well out in advance, avoiding the busier times if I can. So it's, it's a bit of like, it's a bit of human tech and also tech tech, if you will. And I think um, the railways, what they've done earlier this year is they've actually improved the reservation process. So now you can, it, it's almost like a wish list. You can tell the railways where you're going if tickets aren't yet available on, on the day and they will do all they can to book so you if in. if you have like a first option, a second option, a third option kind of thing? Right. Kind right. Of, wow, that's interesting. Wow. It's, it's actually, the railways actually have a, uh, what, what I call the the uh, the standby or the waitlist ticketing system. And they've actually improved it right before the start of the new year for 2024. So now you can have even more waitlist options. You can choose even more trains that you want to travel on. Uh, you can choose more dates. And as a result, uh, it I mean, it's not a magic pill, but it gets you home probably with a greater possibility by rail. You no, know, I've noticed you on online, you know, on X and so forth, sometimes get critical of people when they fly, when there's a train readily available. But I have a question. During Chinese New Year, given that there are so many tra- people traveling by rail and it may not be the best time to get around, does your judgment come down a little bit for people who fly? <laughs> I, I mean, what my view is we should 
conscientiously avoid flying if we can.、Mm-hmm. Now there are periods where this rule does not apply. Like for example, last year when I was invited to do a rail English session for Hangzhou stations, my outbound from Beijing South got cancelled because of the earthquake in、uh, northern Dezhou. So like it or not, I had to fly. So I mean, in these unforeseen circumstances, if you fly, I guess it's okay. But if you fly all the time, if you do like about twenty flights between Beijing and Shanghai every month,、mm-hmm. that's a little bit over. Kill. I mean, you do have a really good high-speed network in China, so why don't you take the train if you can? And my view is over-established high-speed routings in China and overseas, including say London to Paris and inside Spain. You really shouldn't be flying unless you have like an absolute emergency, unless all trains are, and other modes of transport are booked out, and you really need to go. I mean, when push comes to shove, okay, you can choose other modes of transport, but still, for the sake of you know. Green travel. We should still do trains as much as we can. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. Also, I'm also very environmentally conscious, and I prefer to take the train honestly, because you have Wi-Fi. And you're on the airplane. They're like, shut off all of your phones. Or like, I had headphones last time I was on the plane, and they made me take them out. I wasn't even using. I had it on airplane mode and everything, but they still told me I couldn't like listen to anything. It was very frustrating. But on the train, you know, you can order food. It comes to your stops. Like you have Wi-Fi. I mean, the main reason we invited you and. Expert on rail to come to talk to us today is because、uh, notoriously Hyperloop One, the most well-known Hyperloop experimental technology company,、uh, has shuttered, is closed down,、uh, and I think this was run by Elon Musk. So I was wondering, why do you think it's closing down at this time? Because Elon has loads of money and he has loads of companies. Why do you think he's closing this up?、Um, I think in the end,、um, he it's a case of like if you want to bring something into the world, which is transport. Related. At the end of the day, you will need the authorities okay on this, and I think in this case,、um, Hyperloop was not so much too advanced, too ahead of its time, as and it was just simply not the ideal project in a country which I think. Hitherto hasn't really been so rails oriented as it has been roads oriented. In the U.S., if you want to get from A to B, you either drive or you fly. Unless you're like in a northeastern corridor where the Asla is a viable alternative. But I mean,、um, in the states, there's not so much an option to go by public transport when everything is centered around interstates and stuff like that. Now, I think if a similar project was like say done in China, because of the way infrastructure is here, we have the world's largest. High-speed railway network and the longest network of motorways in China. So I imagine in China the situation would be much easier because there is a certain market, an established market for public transport and for business people who want to get from A to B faster. So I imagine if a similar project was to be launched, like say in China, it would. I mean, there's no guarantee it's going to work, but the chances are higher. Well, okay. Before I ask the next question, I want to ask a kind of a preliminary question. So the place. Places that have high-speed rail now are Japan, China,、uh, Europe, Southeast Asia. Where else am I missing? Indonesia,、uh, Southeast Asia.、Uh, the Wush train in Indonesia is the fastest train in Southeast Asia, and also interestingly enough, in the Southern Hemisphere.、Mm. So、uh, you've got a little bit of that. I mean, I've always said that Melbourne to Sydney should be done by rail and not by flying, and Unfortunately, there are no HS lines in Australia yet, and I would love to see one happening, but、um, it's not going to happen overnight. Well, 
as you know, I'm an American and uh, we have corridors of rail that our own U.S. media call high-speed rail in Florida and a couple other lines near Washington. I was wondering, do these uh, high-speed rail, in quotation marks, actually meet the standards of international high-speed rail? I think in China, the thing is, uh, the magic figure is not 350, but it's 200. Mm -hmm. If you build a new line and it goes for 200 and faster, chances are it might be considered higher speed, like high or higher speed. If it goes for at least 250 kilometers per hour in terms of in terms of design speed, it's very much high speed. Now, there are a few lines, like say most, you know, um, I would say the majority of heavily traveled lines on the high speed network in China are 350. 250 happens where you have like local lines or lines going through very difficult terrain, for example, through the uh, Mount Qingling, uh, the Qingling mountain range in uh, central southwestern China, uh, from Xi'an to Chengdu, they only do 250 for the time being. So um, that's mountainous terrain. But otherwise, for especially flatland regions like, say, Beijing to Wuhan, the full 350, Beijing to Shanghai, the full 350. But I think in terms of classification of um, higher speed or high speed rail, I think the high speed rail that we all know go at least 250. 200 is getting close. I, I personally would say 250 is, is, definitive, is definitely high speed. I think in Europe, the situation is a little bit different because they have to upgrade the classic lines or build new ones altogether. But I think 250 either ways would be a safe bet. Do any of the lines in the US currently uh, have segments where they travel at more than 200 kilometers per hour? In the States, I'm aware the Asala does something, you know, pretty much close around, say, Washington to New York and places like that. But I think the rest of the the, uh, network in the States is not as fast as that. And often it takes several hours, even several days to get across the country. In contrast, there are new rail lines being proposed, one from Los Angeles to Las Vegas and one from the the real one that everyone's been talking about for 20 years from Los Angeles to San Francisco and Sacramento. Um, Are these going to be real HSR? Are they going to be 250 plus kilometers per hour, to your knowledge? They certainly are going to be that fast. I think we're looking at um, 350 kilometers per hour, basically the same as, like, say, in China. Uh, But but the problem is, I've taken a look at California, the, the line in California, and the part being built right now is... Somewhere in the middle of nowhere, we're looking at, say, Merced or Madeira to Bakersfield. That will basically be like the Beijing to Shanghai high-speed railway, but starting in Changzhou West and ending at Chuzhou. So just outside the main hub cities. But it, it's built, but it's not the part of a line that we really want. Hmm. And so, for example, if the connection to Los Angeles was built, that would be the bit from Chuzhou to Shanghai. And the bit from uh, Merced Madeira was built to Sacramento or San Francisco. That'd be like, say, from Changzhou West to Beijing South or to Tianjin West. But uh, we're missing bits here, hmm. unfortunately. Well, um, I certainly we hope we can flesh that out. I remember living in California and thinking how convenient it would be if there was HSR. Uh, that I was thinking that more than 10 years ago. Okay, so according to China Daily, in April 2023, China is likely to put in Hyperloop into operation by 2035, end quote. I'm kind of surprised. I'm really shocked because it doesn't doesn't really exist. 
So how for them to make the uh, speculation that China will have it by 2035, they must certainly know something I don't know. Uh, how is China, to your knowledge, going to accomplish this? Is there a prototype? And do you think that they will achieve that goal? Personally speaking, I'm not 100% sure about the Hyperloop, but I am however sure about Maglev, which is the next generation, mm-hmm. 600 kilometers per hour. Mm-hmm. And I think about one or two years ago, I saw that at one of the flagship expositions in and around Beijing, and they actually have a prototype 600 kilometer per hour Maglev train already built, at least conceptualized. So all that needs to happen then is to build mm-hmm. the routings. Now, by 2035, what China is basically doing is it's going to be doing a huge interconnubational express transport network. Basically, northern China, Beijing, Tianjin, and uh, Hebei, and I think certainly Xi'an will be part of it. Eastern China, uh, Jiangsu, Shanghai, Zhejiang. Southern China, that would be the Greater Bay Area, Guangdong, Hong Kong, and Macau. And southwestern China, like uh, more like, say, uh, Sichuan and uh, Chongqing. By 35, probably all of these will have super express transport systems connected. They would obviously include the present-day high-speed network. But also, I would hazard a guess that Maglev will certainly be on board, I think. I mean, if they're serious about building that um, that huge super express transport network. And maybe, just maybe Hyperloop, you know, could be part of a deal as well. But Maglev, I'm pretty sure they're thinking about because I've seen the plans for some parts of the routings as well. And they actually have future-proofed routings just to the side of the current high-speed lines today, going into southern China, and they call that super high-speed, a basic reference then, if you will, to Maglev. You're listening to The Bridge. Okay, let me ask a couple of basic questions because I am a layman on, at this. Um, Maglev, you mentioned travel will probably travel around six hundred kilometers per hour, which is what a hundred kilometer. It's it's close to the sound barrier. Actually, it's only like two hundred kilometers per hour away from it. So theoretically, how fast would Hyperloop? You know, I know I know there's no specifics, there's no prototype, but just theoretically, how fast would it go? I think we. I think from what I've been reading, it's around um, close to about a thousand or so. I mean, um, the Hyperloop thing has been something which has been very novel, far more concepts and theory rather than it being in action. And I've yet to actually see a 1,000 kilometer per hour maglev train in actual operation. So it'll also bring its own challenges like that. But um, I think China's going at, uh, China is moving forward, but not too fast. Mm-hmm. In fact, they are thinking of the next generation of conventional wheeled high-speed trains at 400 kilometers per hour for everyday use and 450 for testing. So uh, that's happening. I think this or next year, they will have this ready. And this will run exactly on one part of the uh, Super Express Transport Network. And this will run between Chengdu and Chongqing. Wow. Okay, well, let me back up and ask a couple of other questions. So firstly, as I understand it, the high-speed rail that currently exists and is used at 45,000 kilometers or something like that in China, most of them can travel, uh, if they really wanted to push it, much faster than 350 kilometers per hour. But they choose to travel at 350 kilometers per hour for safety reasons. Is that right? Safety, and also I think it's also a case of a... um, well, I would call like a relaxed and 
a relaxed journey in terms of smooth operations because I've actually been on trains mm. which um, move faster, but then the whole experience was not as smooth as like nice as I would have like you know uh, preferred it to be. I mean, safety is one issue, comfort is another issue, and I think also at the end of the day. Um, running trains faster is what everyone wants to do. Now, the thing is, then dispatch has to work late nights and see, okay, we can accommodate one more or two more services. We have to redo the timetabling and we have to allow that basically there'll be other trains joining this current line at this time, at that station and everything like that. So it's not a case of, you know, someone just ramming the stick to 350 on a high speed railway train. You have to plan it in advance. You have to get the timetabling sorted. You have to um, ensure that it actually makes sense financially and in terms of ridership and um, which is why some new lines open at, th at 350 or 250 and some do the 350 outright. Well, I guess my question for that question was building to my next question. You mentioned maglev travels at 600 kilometers per hour. So in the future by 2030, 2035, when we have maglev in China, will it be traveling at 600 kilometers per hour or will it be traveling at 500 kilometers per hour for safety or, or what other uh, comfort and so forth? What do you think? Do you, is it actually going to go that fast? I think in the end, this will be an answer which probably will be decided by the rail operators you know themselves um i would not be surprised if they do the full 600 or they if they start progressively and move onward to 600 but it, it is basically a rolling stock which is good for 600 so if they wanted to run it at 600 they can obviously do that i guess as someone who loves rail you know for you i'm wondering how you feel about hyperloop because for me as a consumer of travel right and i travel a lot um maglev if it really did travel at 600 kilometers per hour, I would have no need for something that did a thousand. Honestly, I would be happy to arrive in a very timely fashion using maglev. Is Hyperloop overkill? Is it practical? I mean, just from like a, or is it just something that people want to do because it's possible? What's your opinion? I think it depends on where you're going. Uh, if I was going to go from Beijing to Tianjin, I would take high-speed railway uh, trains we have to do at 350 because it makes sense. If I wanted to do Beijing and Shanghai, if there's a maglev option, I'm going to choose that. If I want to go all the way from, say, Harbin in northeastern China to Kunming in southwestern China, and if there is a Hyperloop line there, and if time is tight, maybe I would choose Hyperloop. I mean, I'm not going to choose Hyperloop, you know, between Beijing and Tianjin because it doesn't make much sense. I mean, obviously you get more free time in Tianjin, but hey, it's a bit overkill. It really depends on, on where you are going, I think. At the end of the day, cost, efficiency, timing, you know, these are all issues. Sorry, yes. No, no, no. Um, Maglev. So, you know, clearly China has the most HSR in the world, but there's a lot of competition for which one is the fastest. I watched some videos on YouTube and there's all kinds of competing lines in Europe and Japan and China that are constantly just beating each other out by incremental margins. I was wondering, now that China is building Maglev, what other countries have maglev theoretically in operation uh, will have it in the in you know the uh, immediate future in the next 10 years or so what other places around the world are there european countries is japan doing this where else is maglev theoretically going to be in operation soon i think japan certainly one that's serious about the uh, shinkan uh, the, the i think is it called the i forgot the name if it's called the chuo shinkansen or something like that which is a maglev line and which is a completely new line i've got to double check but 
Japan is very serious about uh, the uh, maglev train. Europe, I mean, obviously Germany invented it, but uh, Europe is a little bit bogged down these days. It still has a respectable rail network, but now it's got to cater to extending the whole high-speed network across the EU in terms of in latest plans. I mean, there are works afoot already in, say, the Baltic countries, like, say, Rail Baltica. Um, also, then, in Central Europe, there is always the question of um, what do we do with the delays on the German rail network versus how do we expand the rail network in Switzerland to improve capacity. So Europe is Europe has technology for the maglev, but uh, it's a way from actually realizing a Europe-wide maglev, which would be like a wow thing for Europe. But I think China uh, has pretty much what it has to basically build a maglev network if the rolling stock is there, if the network, you know, if the lines are there, it's going to happen. Oh yeah! You're listening to The Bridge. I'd like to actually switch to another topic. You know, as long as we're talking about Europe, the population density of Europe is similar to that of the United States. One of the arguments I hear from my American brothers and sisters is that China can have high-speed rail, a massive high-speed rail network because of the large population makes it uh, feasible for them to put it into action because it's going to be used by a lot of people all the time. And you made the argument at the beginning of the show that America has this uh, interstate system, which is, you know, the primary way goods get around people get around. But, you know, because Europe and the United States have similar population densities, Europe does have HSR. In your opinion, why hasn't, if, I mean, maybe you don't have an opinion, but why do you think the United States hasn't yet upgraded its rail infrastructure, even if it's not for people? Certainly the logistics of moving goods around is challenging now with constant derailings. I hear that there are two or three derailings, minor ones, a day in the United States. And then, of course, you have these more major ones a few times a year that are more public and maybe there are chemicals or whatever uh, being spilled. Doesn't it make sense from your perspective, because it certainly does from my perspective, that the United States should upgrade its rail infrastructure for just logistics, not even just for people. I mean, if we can get people moving around, that also makes sense to me. Is there some reason that I don't understand that you think that it maybe hasn't done that yet? I think it's uh, answering this question at a slight tangent. This is a similar problem we face in Europe. Like, for example, uh, you know, uh, like in Germany, like in Britain, where uh, we have to invest in the infrastructure, in the rails themselves, on the network. So basically to make sure that everything works. Um, in terms of like uh, a modal shift, uh, the modal shift has already established itself in Europe, and Switzerland is one very good case study. They've not just you know they've not just made rail you know uh, attractive for people. They've also made rail attractive for uh, you know uh, you know attractive for things, as in cross border cargo transport goes by rail from Germany to uh, to Italy uh, via via Swiss networks. Um, I think the modal shift thing has happened in Europe. It is happening with increasing, you know, uh, speed in China. And I think in the US, it's really a case of like um, people want like an instant on way to get from A to B. And so far, the car can satisfy, you know, the car can satisfy. Uh, obviously, if you're in a city with a very established transport network, like say New York City, then obviously you have an alternative. Although, um, you know, um, in other cities, you might have less of an alternative. But I think these days, when it comes to mobility, we want 
you know, instant access to a particular mode of transport, and we want it to go fast. And in this case, China has a good option with high speed because trains are generally regular. We have a few lines which have irregular service, but the main lines, like say Beijing Shanghai, are regular. And there's usually the option to buy a ticket and travel within a few hours or within a few within the hour. In fact, I mean, I was at Beijing South the other day, and I could get myself a ticket for a train departing within the next ten minutes. So instant availability is a big thing. In in some countries, it's it, it's basically done by by road. In some others, you know, rail. Does Thank it. you. That does help answer my question a little bit better. Let's switch to the Silk Road a little bit. So the Belt and Road Initiative is a bunch of different things. One component of that is the modern Silk Road, which is the overland route, which is a rail route across Eurasia. Where does it start? Where does it end? Because this, when I look at this information, I get confused because there's so many different answers. They have a lot of different routings. I mean, the Eurasian route in China starts, I think, um, around the no, the the port city of Liaoning and continues. All the way via Shuzhou, Zhengzhou, Xi'an, Lanzhou into Xinjiang, and then way out from the northwest of China to the um, former Soviet republics. So basically, you have this huge line going from east to west across central China. So that's one of the major routes for、um, for both passenger trains and also for cargo. These days, though, cargo crosses the border,、uh, passenger trains less. But there's another line, you know, going、uh, into the far northeast to Manjoli and then onwards to Russia. There's another one going from Erinhot in Inner Mongolia all the way across the border to, I think,、um, Zamenhof and the rest of、uh, Mongolia to Ulaanbaatar. The newest one I like to touch upon, though, is the、uh, China to Laos railway, which goes from Kuming South Station all the way via Mohan in China, Boten in Laos to Yantian in Laos. And I was actually. On a train going across the border, so it was a、um, unique experience. But this is for people, for things. Then they get they continue to go beyond Vientiane into Vientiane South and across the border to、uh, Thailand, and、uh, it basically realizes a、um, mode of transport which is relatively quick, safe, and I would say、um, not a huge reroute by sea. I mean, these days with the trouble in the Suez Canal. I think obviously rail has established itself as a viable alternative from you know for getting things from Asia to Europe and the rest、mm. of the world. Well, certainly I've heard that sending goods by the ocean by water is more affordable than rail, and I've asked a lot of people why. And what some of the reasons I've been given are that different nations between Europe and China have different gauges for their rail, different. Uh, sets of instruments for moving cars, and in the past, each time train a set of cars comes into a new country, they have to be offloaded onto entirely different mechanisms to travel through, like Uzbekistan or wherever, to the next country, and then sometimes change again. I've heard of something called variable gauge rail cars, where they can actually transform the gauge of each of their cars. Is this technology out? I mean, for China, it's it's pretty much. I think they're 
certainly working on it because I've I've heard that prototypes for newer uh, trains will incorporate this for international passenger traffic. In Switzerland, it's really reality. However, it's been used a few times, and then for some reason or the other, they they decided to switch it off. I think it's in the mountainous. I think it's the mountain high, the mountain railways where they go between standard gauge and narrow, the or the meter gauge. It worked a few times in Switzerland, so the technology certainly is there. But for some reason or the other, they they decided to switch it off. It is not completely new technology, but it's a technology which is lesser used. But if it was established and used regularly, it could prove to be a game changer. The alternative then is to build a standard gauge across you know, the network, which is what China is doing for Laos, for Thailand. The new Thai high-speed railway network will be on standard gauge rather than meter gauge. Well, through Central Asia, again, um, these countries are not wealthy yet. You know, they're still middle-income, low-income nations. Is it feasible for them to redo thousands and thousands of kilometers of rail? Or will, will changing cars be the best way to move forward? Or will variable gauge cars be the best way forward? What do you think is most likely going to be assisting the BRI and moving forward for the next decade? I think in the absence of building outright new passenger lines, the latter two you've mentioned probably will be the way things will work for the short term. Now, obviously, it would be nice from my personal point of view if we had international high-speed passenger rail between China and the countries in Central and Western Asia, as it is as long as it is made possible. Uh, it provides a great alternative to flying, and I think it's also more, envi- more environmentally friendly. We've seen basically standard gauge lines being built in countries along the uh, Belt and Road um, corridors into, like, say, Laos, and already it's having a an impact. I mean, when I went to Laos, we saw lots of, you know, Chinese tourists and lots of tourists from all of, you know, from the rest of the world taking the train and um, going to Luang Prabang, going to Vientiane. And I think it's a model which would slowly but surely be a way in which they can also solve the gauge issues. I mean, the gauge issue is, like you've mentioned, a present and real issue which needs to be solved. I think the technology is there, like we've seen in Europe. And I think it's now just a case of deployment, but also the details in terms of making it work and making it work longer term. Um, And I think China, too, could probably do a few new trains, which also take this uh, factor this in as they go across different countries and different gauges. You're listening to The Bridge. Um, you're Swiss national, so you travel between home and here for work and for see your family and so forth. Is it possible for you to jump on a train in Switzerland and come to China by rail? Well, these days, uh, it's far less possible because of the situation in, uh, uh, in Ukraine and Russia. But I think before the pandemic, before the war, it was, it was possible. And I heard that all you need to do is take a train and there's one or two interchanges in Germany and in, in Russia and you can come all the way to Beijing. That would obviously shave about two weeks off. And if I had something urgent, I would probably obviously be flying intercontinentally. Uh, but um, the rail uh, option was certainly there. And I actually traveled on international train K3 from Beijing, which would have taken me all the way to Moscow. Uh, but I left at the first uh, timetable stop at Janjako South Station. But the trains are there. But the pandemic 
pandemic and other reasons, they've basically been um, put back in a shed and not running at the present moment. But I would actually like to see as far as possible, and it's not restricted to any particular geography, more international high-speed passenger rail. And that would be a great alternative than just for me to fly around all over. Now, there are places where you have to fly, like, say, from Beijing to Sydney. Uh, it, it, it's going to be very hard building a, a, um, you know, a bridge all the way from, say, uh, Indonesia all the way to Australia. But like I said at the start of the show, as much as possible over established high-speed routes, take the train, don't fly. I mean, most, in my opinion, I'm just kind of speculating here. Maybe I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just using my general uh, knowledge. Most European countries, their number one trading partner is China. So wouldn't it make a lot of sense for not, I mean, I think it's great if we could have passenger high-speed rail between China and Europe, but it would also make a lot of sense for goods. So I, I'm certainly hoping that there are alternative lines that go through different places between, you know, not just China, but like, you know, East Asia and Europe being developed over the next 10 or 20 years. Is that part of the Belt and Road? Is that something that might be going on just in other mediums? Uh, what do you think about that? I think in, in terms of international passenger transport, eventually the plan, I think as I have seen it uh, before the pandemic, was to do an international line across, I think, uh, across Eurasia from China to Europe. And I think I've seen that as much as like about uh, 13 or 14 years back. Of course, these days, it's only happening inside China because it's a, well, because they can only build in China. And if they want to build elsewhere, they will need permission from the local authorities. But I am hoping eventually that this will happen and this will prove to be a far better and viable alternative, especially for traveling short to medium haul across China, across Central and Western Asia, across Eastern Europe. Now, China has been building a few lines from, I think, Serbia to Hungary, across Europe as well. But um, it's just being built at the moment. Some parts are already opened. Um, eventually, I think rail will present itself to be a greener mode of transport across like any geography. It's not just exclusively limited to, say, Asia or Europe. In fact, I would say uh, it would be a good thing if the US got itself a high-speed network, the same as we have in Europe and China, because it would be a far greener way of getting across travel from argentina to canada by rail that'd be pretty nice uh, yes uh, we do <laughs> we have a do needed to uh, mind uh, how we get through the darien gap because the trans-american highway has that little bit in the darien gap in central uh, southern uh, america where you know there are no road access so it, that's a bit of a challenge as well oh yeah listening to the bridge Africa. So there are new lines. I, I don't think they're, they're high-speed rail, or maybe there are a couple. There are a lot of new rail lines in Nigeria and other places that have been developed by the African Union and by uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and by some European companies, but a lot of them don't cross borders. So we have more than 50 countries in Africa. One, one of the advantages, I was talking to um, Jeffrey Sachs about this a couple, about a year ago, and he mentioned that one of the advantages China has is that it's one country. 
So if they want to do something, they just do it. But the problem, one of the challenges that Africa as a continent faces is it's many different political systems. Do you think that transnational, you know, rail across multiple countries can bring landlocked countries that currently exist access to seaports? In fact, as, as you've been saying this, I've actually been taking a look at a railway line which actually goes across borders and does exist. I think it's the Addis Ababa to Djibouti railway. And it basically allows, um, you know, uh, Ethiopia to basically get access to the, uh, to Djibouti and to the uh, Gulf of, to the Gulf of Aden geographically. So I think that line, I mean, is obviously doing freight. But I mean, I would assume eventually also passenger rail would also be uh, happening as well. And I think um, you also mentioned earlier on in your question about high speed in Africa. There is actually a line I've taken a particular look at, and it would be, if I remember the name right, the Al-Barak in, in Morocco. And that is Africa's fastest train, I think at least 300, if not 320 kilometers per hour. Having said that, I would love to travel on that line myself. I actually, out of ignorance several years ago, was like, oh, I want to go to South Africa and go to Egypt by rail. And then I was uh, talking to someone and they were like, but that doesn't exist, Jason. And I was very heartbroken because it made no sense to me why it wouldn't exist. Because why wouldn't you just have rail that moves like across the continent? So it's very confusing for me that, you know, I mean, the African Union exists, maybe moving forward in the future, those kinds of things can happen. And I certainly hope they do. Let's change the topic a little bit. Now you travel by rail in China more than maybe anyone, literally. You're super famous for having gone to pretty much everywhere that exists by rail in China. So um, I and my wife, we love to vacation, you know, and we've had a private car. We had, I don't remember where we took a private car. We, it was like Wuhan to Beijing. It wasn't that great. You know, it was a go, old, one of the old green trains overnight and we had a private uh, cabin and it was okay. It wasn't bad, but I want to go posh, you know? So what are the really, you know, extravagant, excellent private cabin experiences that we can find in China? I think interestingly, right before we did this interview, I was browsing the WeChat sphere about Chinese railways. And I think they have a new Orient Express and that would run from central China to the Northwest. And they've been operating this train for like about nearly, I think, is it about 25 years or so? And so it's all very like, you know, um, posh and exclusive. Um, you have real proper beds. You even have, I think if I take a look at the pictures, right, there's even an option for KTV on board. So uh, certainly wow. you have these. And there's another one from Beijing to Hotan um, in the Northwest as well. And I think these operate as well. Really? They're, these trains do exist, um, but they don't. I don't think they run on an everyday basis. These are more like tourist trains that basically uh, run during special periods, during the holidays, uh, carrying passengers. And um, maybe I think in terms of ticketing, they they want to get as many people on board to make it viable and then to operate it. These are not your everyday commuter trains or high speed services, but they are a it's like a traveling hotel. It is it is well, literally a traveling hotel. If you wanted something closer to that running on an everyday basis, soft sleeper or luxury soft sleeper would be available for you. Here's an insider tip. High speed does have luxury soft sleeper, but it's not my first option. You do not get a private toilet in luxury soft sleeper in, on high speed, where you do get it on classic. And also, here's another one of my travel tips then. If you want really quality food, take 
time for the dining car but on classic rail only. On high speed, open flames are not permitted and that basically means all food is pre-cooked and then reheated. So it, it tastes okay, but it's not the real thing like coming fresh from the kitchen. So wow, that's interesting. Um, So for this line from uh, Beijing to Hotan that uh, happens periodically during special time periods, how much does that cost? I mean, around, what's the ballpark figure for taking something like that? And how many days does that take? How many days it would take? I would I would estimate, obviously, um, because Classic Rail takes about two or three days, I think uh, if the train was just doing a direct service, then pretty much the same. But then, of course, you have options where you stop at a particular city, you take a look around, and it it, it depends on how the train stops, how you travel, and like stuff like that. So it, yeah. it could easily stretch to a full week or so. So it wow. really does depend. You can go independent, you can go on the exclusive train, you can go stop-by-stop stop or outright direct to Hotan. It really also depends on how you wish to mm. travel as well. For you, personally, you mentioned preferences and tricks. So how do you travel? Because you kind of work as a uh, freelance person with the rail. Do you travel via every mechanism so that you can have every experience? Sometimes you're in coach, sometimes you're in first class, sometimes you're in business class, just so you know what each one is like? Or do you have a particular style that you like to travel? I mean, I would prefer, uh, you know, obviously uh, quieter parts of the trains, like say premier class or business class, but that's not my absolute first option. Sometimes I will take time out for slow trains and travel in hard class, you know, in, in hard seat class with the rest of pretty much everyone on the train and see how trains used to be years back or even decades back. So I would basically go for all forms of trains, but if I had to make an immediate journey, probably going to be high speed and in a place where there are less people so I can get some decent work done. I don't really sleep on board a train. This is the big differentiator between me and my wife. She would sleep in business class. I wouldn't. I've basically got, got to keep my wits alive at all times and basically ensure that the train actually works properly. I mean, so far, all journeys I've made on Chinese railways are safe. But occasionally, I get a little bit, you know, uh, worried about timing if my train arrives one or two minutes late, which is a very Swiss thing. Everyone in Switzerland <laughs> knows that, you know, um, the moment your train is late by one minute, people start looking at one another and thinking, this is this is hell. And then you get north of Basel and all German trains, you know, the, the, the vast majority of German trains, that it's a completely different story. Oh, yeah. listening to the bridge. Well, let's change gears again. I was in Harbin recently and uh, I was on a uh, kind of a media tour with some other journalists and they brought us aboard this, what they call a train, but it's not on tracks. It's on wheels kind of, and it follows a white dotted line and it uses AI and it's like a bus, but three or four times longer than a bus. And it's a little faster and has a dedicated lane that can be used by it when it's there alone. Is this a train? What is this called? Because when I posted pictures of it on X, a lot of people were like, that's not a train, Jason. That's a bus. It's just a really long bus. So what makes it a train? What makes it what makes it not a train? What do you think about it? Well, uh, being from Zurich, where we have a huge tram network, I would tend to call this a trackless tram. Uh, and in Europe, there is a there's a lot of controversy on if, if this is a 
train or not. And some people are basically saying it's gadget barn, basically a nice fancy, you know, train, which doesn't actually work or is a serious mode of transport. I'm split. I would not so much negate it, but it's closer to the gadget barn end of my thinking. I think um, I would prefer an ordinary tram line or a railway line and a dedicated sealed off you know, uh, right of way for the simple fact that uh, in s- there are places in the world, and uh, unfortunately, I've seen some pretty bad driving around northern China as well, where people just simply barge in and occupy the exclusive bus lane and um, tram lanes and stuff. Other uh, tram lanes are rare, but you know, people would occupy the the bus lane, and I was like wondering, well, if you just have that, then you're going to be holding up the tram. And I've I've seen on enough, you know, horror videos on YouTube when a car. Is is in the wrong place and a tram comes by, almost always the tram will win. So I think in terms of safety, <laughs> in terms of things yeah. like that, I would have personally preferred an exclusive, dedicated reserve right away for the tram. What are the advantages? Well, I mean, obviously someone thinks that this is a good technology because they've built it and it must have cost, I don't know how much money, more than I will ever see. So there clearly is some kind of logic to wanting these new uh, modes of transport, as, as you've been saying throughout the show. So what are some of the advantages of this kind of technology? The fact is new, but I tend to see it from a different perspective. Irrespective of the mode of transport, what you want with a good transport system is you want regular service, you want frequent service. Now, if you're going to have that kind of a rail system uh, without the rails, if we negate the the technology slash whether it's gadget bun or not, at least you have to provide a regular service, like a train every three minutes, every five minutes. If that doesn't happen, then why would you build the line in the very first place? And that's another thing there. If you have a working public transport system which goes short haul inside the city, make it work so that there's a train every three minutes, every five minutes, and that will kind of... I have another question maybe you don't have the answer to, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because you would, you would be much more likely to know than me. In the last two or three weeks, I saw two different charts. One that said that the longest metro system in the world was in Shanghai, and one that said that the longest metro system in the world was in Beijing. Could you weigh in on this? I'm tendentially <laughs> going more towards Beijing. I've been a little bit critical in terms of like who has the longest rail network, urban rail. And these days, it seems to be solidly Beijing. Because last year, there wasn't so much development in Shanghai. But in Beijing, we opened up like about Line 16 Southwest, another station on Line 1, uh, uh, another station on Line 11, rather, and Line 17 North from Future, um, from future Science. Yes, from Future Science Park, Future Science City North, all the way to the West. Hmm. Another thing I was curious about is right now, if I want to travel from Beijing to Tianjin, another major city in terms of global cities in the world and in China, I can take that high-speed rail. There is a high-speed rail from one uh, network to another, but there's another way to do this now where you can get on the high-speed metro system to the airport, to the Daxing Airport. And at the Daxing Airport, get on a different high-speed rail, part of the Tianjin network, and go into Tianjin. So you can literally get on the subway in Beijing and then get arrive at the subway in Tianjin without having to take conventional form of train. The marketing, the labeling of these lines is a little bit, you know, uh, perplexing. Because when the 350 kilometer per high speed line between Beijing and Tianjin opened in 2008, it was regarded as Beijing to Tianjin intercity rail transport, not high speed. 
Mm. Um, in mm. fact, there are four ways of getting from Beijing to Tianjin. It depends on which part of the cities you want. There are four established high-speed routes. Really? In terms of really? metros and suburban rail, they're thinking of one. But so far, crossing the two cities involves a journey on a China national railway train. So, like like you said, there's the one from Beijing South to Tianjin going via Wuqing and not into Hebei. There's another one going from Beijing via Langfang and Hebei to Tianjin South, and on occasion maybe even to Tianjin West. There's a third line opened, I think, late um, 2022, which goes from Beijing Main Station to Baodi in northern Tianjin, and it goes all the way to Beijing, closer to the, to the city centre. And there's a fourth line now going from Beijing West via Daxing Airport all the way to Tianjin West. Mm. With the fourth line, it's actually possible to go from Tianjin West and Tianjin Main Station to Beijing West Railway Station, which is a bit of a reroute, except for if you want to connect to central southern and Western China, which is pretty much where people go to Beijing West to take trains to these destinations. So it's always good to have a, to have one more link than one lesser link by rail. I actually don't think it makes... Well, yeah, that makes sense. If I suppose if I was really interested in getting to Tianjin on a daily basis, I would just take, you know, an HSR from one station to another. But I, I actually do want to go via Dashing one time just to make a video about it because it does seem like it's a little interesting to use this hub as kind of a pivoting point to get between the two cities. Okay, last uh, major question I have for you is, you know, which for, for people, some people like going to airports or and train stations for the beauty of the station itself. What are some of the most outstandingly beautiful train stations we have here in China? That's quite a good question. I mean, going back to Daxing Airport, I think the in terms of um, the the artistic elements, the station is a bit more artistic than other parts. I mean, it is not what I call mega artistic, but the, but there are some you know uh, paintings. Obviously, not Monet quality, but at least you know far better than just a bland station. And by the way, um, the line between uh, Daxing Airport and Tianjin West is actually used, if I may go off on a tangent, possibly also by people who want to connect from an international flight into China and then connect onto other destinations. Like, for example, so far, most flight companies will just be flying to Beijing or to Shanghai. But if yours flies in at Beijing Daxing, like British Airways, and your destination is in Jinan, uh, rather than taking a domestic flight, just take the train. Now, going back onto artistic stations, there are quite a few I've actually encountered with the newer ones, including those on a new high-speed line between Daxing Airport and Tianjin West. Some of these are really, really, you know, the art in terms of a station art, in terms of the uh, station square, where there's a lot of focus on making it really, really nice. I've actually been doing a YouTube video about these. Um, the most impressionable one I've, I've seen so far is like in central eastern China in Anhui and Hefei South, where there is art pretty much everywhere in all design elements of a station. So that certainly would be, be one that I would really, really think, wow, that is a nice design. Also, newer, more recent ones in northern China, like Da Chang Station in Hebei, it's made to look like a palace, almost like a rail palace. So um, in recent years, the railways have really been taking a good look and making stations look artistic, even across borders. In Laos, Luang Prabang Railway Station, if you have a chance, go there. It really will just simply be 
an epic view. Wow. Thank you for all of your advice. Actually, I really want to try the luxury train from Beijing to Hoha. Is that what you said? Or where was it? A, yeah. Hotan. Hotan to Hotan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did take an overnight from Beijing to Ho, Hotan. Yeah, I got, I got the two mixed up. Um, Well, if you like this podcast, remember to subscribe. And if you are looking for more on trains, please find David Fung on Twitter at David Fung Trains or on YouTube also at David Fung Trains. That's F-E-N-G Fung Trains, plural. Thank you for your time, listeners. Thank you for your time, David. Join me next time on The Bridge. Thank you. Oh, yeah.